0: Okay, so we're working through systematic theology, and we're on this chapter on God creating us as men and women. And so the schedule is, we finish this up today, man as male and female, and then as Bob mentioned, uh, the first Sunday of the month, no class, so next week, no fooling, no class, and then um, April 1st. And then April 8th, Easter, no class of any classes on Easter, and then we'll be back April 15th. What are we made of, body only, or soul and spirit, or soul, spirit. What is our soul? What is our spirit? Where does it come from? Where do we get a soul or a spirit? Um, So that's called the constituent nature of man, is the technical uh, topic for that next week, and then April 22nd, a guest teacher. All right, now, on men and women. Um, This is at the top of your outline. Uh, uh, I I wrote this book called Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, and a whole lot of what I'm saying is in here, and, and a lot more. And uh, so I just mentioned that book, and then that's in over 800 pages, and then that's that. And then uh, Multnomah cut it down to a little quick quick read of about 300 pages, countering the claims of evangelical feminism. And then John Piper and I edited a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And actually, the uh, chapter on Genesis in that book is written by Ray Ortland, who's preaching here this morning. Okay, so now... Key issue number one, we talked about this last week. Men and women are equal in value and dignity. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We both share in the great status of being equal in the image of God. Key issue number two, men and women have different roles in marriage as part of the created order, and we mentioned ten reasons why I think in um, Genesis, in the creation, there was a leadership role for Adam. Um, uh, Adam was created first. Uh, Adam, not Eve, represented the human race. Adam named Eve. uh, The human race was named uh, with uh, the word man. In Hebrew, Adam had a a male connotation to it. Uh, God spoke to Adam first after the fall. That's number five. Number six, Eve was created as a helper for Adam. Number seven, the curse brought a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction of new roles. Uh, Your desire will be to usurp authority over your husband, but he will rule over you by greater power and force, I think is the curse. And then number eight, the restoration, salvation in Christ reaffirms the creation order. Number nine, the mystery, marriage from the beginning of creation was a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And number ten, the parallel with the Trinity uh, also indicates that there's a leadership role for uh, the husband in marriage, and I'll go on to that in more detail. Well, those are the, that's where we ended last week. That was the uh, summary. Now, the question is... If husbands and wives are equal before God in personhood, in in abilities, in various abilities, not same, but equal in in personhood and and value and uh, dignity before God and importance to the family and to the work of the kingdom, but there's a leadership role for the husband, well, then how does it work out in practice? And I think how it works out in practice is that um, there are mistakes that can be made on both sides on the aggressive side, and the passive side. And so uh, this chart that I put up uh, on the overhead kind of summarizes the mistakes that can be made. That is, it seems to me that the biblical ideal is one of uh, loving, humble headship for the husband, and joyful, intelligent submission to or acknowledgement of that headship on the part of the wife. So that's the biblical ideal there can be distortions of that biblical picture in two directions. There can be a distortion in the area of a husband being a tyrant, where he thinks his headship means that, that uh, everything in the, everybody in the family should serve him, and he just likes to give orders, and he, he uh, likes to boss people around, and he doesn't really take thought for uh, his wife's well-being or the well-being of the children or, or uh, can think of anything beyond his own interests often. That's a distortion of the biblical ideal. And when that becomes extreme, it, it tends toward uh, uh, emotional or verbal or even physical abuse, which is just horribly wrong and should never be taught as, or, uh, or approved of in any Christian setting, but should be opposed. On the other hand, an error of aggressiveness on the part of the wife could be a usurper. She tries to take over leadership in the family. Um, but, there are passive errors as well, that is, instead of being a tyrant, a husband can just um, opt out of any leadership responsibility and become very passive in the family. He just comes home from work, clicks on the TV, and tunes out, and the kids aren't doing their homework, he does nothing. Uh, there's a problem with the neighbor uh, harassing his wife or his kids, and he does nothing. Uh, the the, uh, you know, the classic example in the book of Proverbs is the weeds are growing or the roof is leaking and he does nothing. And, um, and uh, more than that, on a spiritual level, uh, a husband who is passive and uh, doesn't take leadership in terms of the family's not going to church, he does nothing about it. Um, or the family is always 15 minutes late for church, and he does nothing about it. They just can't quite get their act together in terms of uh, spiritual leadership. Or the kids are rebellious against their mom, or or talking back to her, and not obedient to her, and he does nothing about it. Well, that I, the only word I think of that really fits that in terms of his responsibility is a whim. He's just uh, he's uh, abdicated his responsibility of leadership in the family. Um, on the other hand. Um, instead of being a usurper and taking over leadership, a wife can have an error of passivity as well. And that is, uh, it's just uh, her contribution to family decisions throughout uh, 30, 40, 50 years of marriage is just, yes, dear, whatever you say. Yes, dear, whatever you say. And she doesn't contribute in the intelligent, wise, thoughtful, mature way that God wants her to contribute. And in fact, her husband may be doing wrong and she says nothing about it. Or her husband may be even abusive toward her, and she will not seek outside help. And I think that's wrong, because it has to be brought to an end. And so that, I guess, uh, the word I would put for that kind of behavior is uh, a doormat. Now, you get all sorts of combinations in different kinds of marriages. You, uh, you can get um, a tyrant married to a usurper, and they're just fighting all the time. 24 hours a day or you get a tyrant married to a doormat and there's really horrible abuse and dehumanization of the wife but also in a way of the husband because he's becoming cruel and harsh or you get a wimp married to a usurper and she marches around uh, uh, with her briefcase six steps in front of him and he comes behind carrying everything else I mean I've literally seen that happening Um, But that's the picture in my mind of that. Or you get a wimp married to a doormat, and everything just goes downhill forever. (laughs) So um, those are the errors that can be made. Now, here's the thing. We all have tendencies in our own hearts, and we have tendencies from our own backgrounds. And you know you know who you are. You know the kind of family background you've come from, the kind of personality you have, and you may have a tendency to err on the side of uh, aggressiveness or passivity. You may have a tendency to err one side or the other, and you may, in different contexts, have a tendency to become overly aggressive or overly passive. You may act one way at home, another way at church, another way when you visit your (laughs) in-laws. And I think that uh, what God wants us to do is to continue to stay in his word and pray and seek God's help that we stay in the middle here, in the biblical ideal, seeking to be faithful to that picture as much as we can. Do you have questions on that before? I go on. Um, I'll say one more thing. Um, People say, well, how does this uh, headship work out in practice? Uh, And I've heard people actually say, well, it only comes into play once every 10 years when the husband and wife can't agree on something. I don't think that's right. I think they're Probably in a in a marriage functioning according to a biblical pattern, I think there's probably a kind of a quiet, subtle acknowledgement of this pattern of decision making that just affects the whole of the couple's relationship throughout uh, every day when they're making decisions together. Now, uh, Margaret and I will talk about things at length. Uh, we'll. Uh, um, uh, yeah, we we got we got a, a, one of those little dwarf palm trees planted in our backyard by a landscaper last Saturday, and we talked about that at some length, more length than I was happy to talk about it with. <laughs> and I think I mentioned I carried that little thing to a lot of different places and then back to a lot of different places in the backyard. But we ended up with a good decision, and and uh, and I'm glad. But you, look, if you're married, you you know those things. You just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret's giving a little more information to Debbie about how. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So we talk at length about small things like uh um you know just what we're going to do some evening together or or large things such as when we have to buy a, a house or a car, which are decisions that we've made in the past. And we respect each other, we often defer to each other, and I, I just value Margaret's viewpoint and wisdom and maturity and thoughtfulness in so many ways because God has given her lots and lots of wisdom and insight. But in every decision that we make, whether large or small, and whether we've reached agreement or not, the final responsibility for making the decision rests with me. It's not because I'm wiser, it's not because I'm a better leader, It's just because I'm the husband, and God has given me that responsibility. And in the face of lots of cultural pressures, to the contrary, I will not give up that leadership role that belongs to me as a husband. I won't be embarrassed by it. I won't deny it or forsake it. I think it's right. Margaret and I both think it's right, and it's God-given. Now, um, another analogy that may be helpful, takes it outside of the marriage realm, is in the workplace. Um, how many of you have reported to somebody else in a work situation? 100%, I guess. How many, how many of you have had other people report to you in a work situation? Lots of you, many of you, okay. Okay. Well, sometimes work situations can be bad, but there are good work situations. And you think of a of a small shop, for instance, where there are five or six employees, and, and you walk in one day, and you buy something, and you walk. You may not even know who's in charge, because just everything's working smoothly. But if there's trouble, or if there's a conflict with a customer, or some state inspector comes by with some violation or something, Everybody knows who you turn to. Everybody knows who's in charge. Where there's a decision to be made, there's an acknowledgement that the boss is the boss. And in a good work situation, that isn't a a tyrant kind of uh, decision-making process. Oftentimes there's listening to other people's viewpoint, but you still know who the boss is. I think that that doesn't mean the person is more valuable as a person, just because he or she is the boss. It just means that there's an authority that's been entrusted to the person. And so I think acknowledging a leadership role to a husband in marriage is not oppressive or, or demeaning, um, but I think it's just right in a biblical sense. Do you want to talk about that anymore? Um, are we all right on that? Okay, I'm going to go on. Um, I'm going to mention two other things that I don't, uh, don't want to talk about at length here. I, the conflict with egalitarianism or feminism in the culture is whether there's a leadership role for the husband. <clears throat> there are two other points. I won't talk about it here, but I think the, the husband has primary responsibility to provide for and protect the family, uh, including protection from all abuse. And the wife has primary responsibility to care for the home and nurture children if God gives children. And I discussed that at some length in evangelical feminism and biblical truth. Interestingly enough, even feminists seem to acknowledge something of this, because even the most radical feminist who wants to share everything equally I don't think in that marriage, when there's a strange sound outside in the backyard in the middle of the night, we'll say, um, we'll, we'll want the husband to say, oh, let's see, it's odd number day, it's your turn, dear, to go out and check what's wrong. No, there's an acknowledgement that it falls to the husband to protect, the primary responsibility to protect. And, um, and I think primary responsibility to provide for, now, I don't... I don't have any objection to wives as well as husbands contributing to the income in the family. I think Proverbs 31 assumes that that's being done. The wife uh, considers that her merchandise is profitable. She considers a field and buys it, and and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I don't think that it's her primary responsibility. So that I said, when I performed the wedding ceremony, uh, for instance, for, well, I remember the one, I don't know if I did for all three, maybe I did, but uh, for our oldest son and his wife, Elliot and Casey, in the wedding ceremony, I said, now, Elliot, um, God has given you the primary responsibility to provide for your family. If Casey uh, wants to help in terms of earning income, and you agree on this, and um, and, and it's, it's fine that uh, she is able to, to, to help, but she doesn't have to. You have to. Um, as it turned out, He worked, she went to school, got an MBA, and she worked. And with her MBA, she was earning quite a bit of money, so he went to seminary and got an MDiv degree. Now he's a pastor, and she's home taking care of their daughter. And uh, So there was an interchange of roles for a time, but for the purpose of enabling him long-term to be the primary provider. And I think that's right. And similarly, I think the wife has the primary responsibility to care for the home and nurture children, although uh, I think it is certainly right for husbands to help. Okay, now, let me just watch my time, because I want to come, uh, when, when we get to the end of the hour here, I want to be done with this uh, topic. Some egalitarian objections to male headship in marriage. And there are three that I'll talk about. Um, <clears throat> the first one is Galatians 3.28 abolishes role distinctions in marriage because it says in Christ there's neither male nor female. The second one is Ephesians 5.21 teaches mutual submission, so there's no leadership role for the husband. And the third one is that head means source, not authority. In the husband is the head of the wife, Ephesians 5.23, as Christ is the head of the church. I'll just spend a couple of minutes on each of these objections that have been used by evangelical feminists, that is, people within the evangelical world who say there's no leadership role for men or for the husband. And the other word I use to call them is egalitarians. And so that's in the heading on your outline, egalitarian objections. Um, First objection is Galatians 3.28 abolishes role distinctions in marriage. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Egalitarians will look at this and and say, look, these roles between men and women, husbands and wives... These are abolished because we're all one in Christ Jesus, so there's neither male nor female. My answer is to this, that where it says you are all one, it means that we have unity, but it doesn't mean we're exactly the same. Um, uh, It doesn't mean we're exactly the same because elsewhere, Paul wrote about the husband being the head of the wife and wives being subject to their husbands' leadership. He's not contradicting himself. Um, but we have to interpret this consistently with the rest of what the Bible teaches about husbands and wives. <clears throat> and uh, after Paul wrote Galatians, he wrote uh, Ephesians and Colossians, both of which talk about husband's headship in marriage. So, so I don't think that abolishes leadership. In fact, uh, I had a former student, Rick Hove, who wrote a whole book on what Galatians 3.28 means, and he did a lot of research into the Greek construction of you are all one, Showed that every place where this construction occurs, it joins different kinds of things. You're many members, but one body. You know, there's an arm, a a, a foot, ear, an eye, but that doesn't mean the ear and the eye all have the same functions. It just means you're united. You're all one body. And so I think what Paul is saying is that in the body of Christ, you have differences, but um, you're still united as one. And don't think of each other as better and worse. I'm a Jew, you're a Greek. I'm free, you're a slave. I'm a man, you're a woman. Don't think of yourselves as better and worse. You're all one, be united. The problem with the egalitarian view, if you say Galatians 3.28 abolishes distinctions between men and women, can you think what the next step in the argument would be? It's going to abolish some other kind of role distinctions. Um, let me just read this a tragic case: <clears throat> a man we know, who was a pastor, in fact, pastor in the church we went to in England, left his wife for a homosexual relationship, and then began writing aggressively promoting homosexuality. His name is Roy Clements. He was a really well-known preacher in England. It shocked the British evangelical world in 1999 when he, when he left for this relationship. What does he say? He says, in the wake of, secu- of the secular feminist movement, women have found new confidence to claim a role for themselves within the church. They've developed a hermeneutic to deal with the biblical texts which had not been used to deny their which had been used to deny them that role in the past. Gay Christians are using exactly the same kind of hermeneutic tools to challenge the tradition in regard to homosexuality. So he's saying you take the same way of interpreting the Bible that rules out male leadership in marriage and the church, and you can use that same kind of argument to say there's neither male nor female, so. What's wrong with homosexual relationships? you see where that argument goes and I think the logic is consistent and he's come out uh, uh, explicitly with that. so I think that Galatians 328 should not be used to say there's no difference in role between men and women are you, are you on, are you with me on that <clears throat> number two Galatians, Ephesians 5:21 some people say this uh, nullifies male authority in marriage Ephesians 5:21 says, Um, submitting to one another or being subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the context shows that what Paul means is, I'm going to give you three examples. Wives be subject to husbands, children be subject to parents, and servants or slaves be subject to your masters. None of those roles is reversible. Paul doesn't mean that there's no authority at all between parents and children, for example. See, He can't mean that parents don't have authority over their children, that you have to be mutually subject to one another and and there's no leadership for the children. I mean, how would that work out? Julie, it's time for you to go to bed now. No, Daddy, it's time for you to go to bed. Uh, Paul didn't mean that, where he says children uh, obey your parents. And the context shows that what Paul is talking about is how those relationships of authority work out. Not one of those relationships is reversible. The Greek word submit, hupotasso, always means submit to an authority. And I think it means some of you be subject to others. Now, uh, a friend of mine, Dan Doriani, uh, did some research on this verse. And never in the whole history of the church before the 1950s did anybody think that Ephesians 5.21 ruled out the husband's leadership in marriage. Never before the 1950s, when feminism came on the scene, was anybody arguing that this verse did away with male leadership in marriage. And I don't think it does. I think it means that husbands should be thoughtful to their wives, and, he, and Paul modifies that and consider it, but it doesn't obliterate male leadership. Number three, some egalitarians have said, if the husband is the head of the wife, Ephesians 5.23, This doesn't mean person in authority. It means source. The husband is the source of the wife, and that's kind of a veiled way of talking about Adam and Eve. Adam was the source of Eve. Well, this Greek word for head, kephale, um, I I once looked at a few examples. Um, In fact, I got a computer printout from a program that was then available through the University of California, Irvine, back in 1985, And um, uh, I looked at 2,336 examples of this Greek word, head, in ancient Greek literature from Homer, 8th century B.C., on through Plato and Aristotle and Thucydides and Herodotus and a lot of Greek authors, all the way up to some church fathers in the 4th century A.D., over 2,000 examples. And I read a lot of cases. I mean, most of the time, it just means physical head of a person's body. And I read lots and lots and lots of battle stories where one soldier cut off the head of another, more than I ever wanted to read, but that's where it was. Uh, But I found over 50 examples where A is the head of B, means A is the person in authority. Um, uh, For instance... Uh, The Roman emperor is called the head of the empire. The general is called the head of the army. In early church literature, the bishops are called the heads of the churches. Christ is called the head of the church. Um, And uh, again and again, every case was always the person in authority. Not one example has ever been discovered where person A is the head of person B uh, uh, does not occur in a context where person A has authority over person B. So I think it's quite clear That Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, means just what you always thought it meant. Before I looked at 2,336 examples, it just means there's a leadership role for the husband, though that is to be exercised with love and dignity and respect and care. I'm going to skip all that. So number two issue, we have different roles in marriage, even though we're equal. Number three, why did God make us this way? Why did God make us to be equal in value, but different from each other? Why didn't he just make all robots that all look the same? Or why didn't he just make all angels that I don't think have uh, gender distinctions? Why did he make us as men and women? I think that one reason Pammy. Why did you think that it kind of marriage uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's a reflection of the Trinity. And that that's, um, that's what I think Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, if head means person in authority or leader, then what it's saying when it says the head of Christ is God is that the, the God, the Father, is the leader in the Trinity. He has a a leading role, an initiating role, a directing role, a guiding role that the Son and the Holy Spirit do not have. And I think that's why God made us male and female, because he made us to reflect himself. And when we are equal as men and women, but different in roles, we're like God, because the Father and Son are equal, and Holy Spirit, equal in deity, but different in roles. And so, when that works out well, it's a beautiful reflection of the Trinity. Um, and just as the father honors the son in the Trinity, so husbands are to honor their wives, never be unkind, never abusive, never thoughtless, never careless, but, but always kind and gracious to their wives and seek honor for their wives. So, uh, and then here's the diagram. Just as the father and son are equal... Equal in, in eternity, equal in attributes, equal in power, equal in wisdom, equal in knowledge, equal in all their abilities. So, but they are different in role because the Father sends the Son into the world. Or the Father creates the world through the Son in Genesis, and we get more explanation in John 1. And the, the Son comes and is obedient to the Father. And then the Father exalts him at his right hand. But he's at the right hand. Which means the father still has the leadership role. So in marriage, their husband and wife are equal but different in roles. Um, and now I, I should just say that when I wrote that this that uh, this word kephale means head means authority, there was all sorts of academic challenge to it, and I had to write some more articles back to kind of answer it. And I think that the, I think it's kind of done now, but. But it's, it's, I just, uh, writing in favor of male leadership in marriage doesn't make you popular with everybody. (laughs) And some scholars write back and argue about that. So in this area, where I have written and others have written that the Trinity gives a pattern for marriage and the Father's leadership gives a pattern for marriage, there have been some scholars who have written things back and saying that Grudem is wrong and everybody who agrees that that view is wrong. And so um, Kevin Giles published a book recently with Zondervan. Gilbert Bilizikian, uh formerly from Wheaton College and connected with Willow Creek Church, has published an article against that. And so that's a, kind of an ongoing debate. But I don't think there's any question where it's going to end up. Because the Bible is clear. There is a leadership role for the Father in the Trinity. Here are some other scripture passages. Ephesians 1.4, even as he the Father chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's a leadership role for the Father. The Father predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's a leadership role to the Father in Romans 8.29. John 3.16, if you only know one verse in the Bible, you know that. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, the father has a leadership role there. He's sending the son. Um, John 1.3, Hebrews 1, 1.2, 1 Corinthians 8.6, Romans 8.34. I'm not going to read all of these. 1 Corinthians 15.28, When all things are subjected to him, the son will be subjected to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So on into eternity future, the son will be subject to the father. So, the question is, when did the idea of headship and submission begin? The idea of authority in interpersonal relationships? Did it begin in 1987 when some of us formed the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood? No. Did it begin with the Old Testament patriarchs? No. Did it begin with the fall in Genesis 3? No. Did the idea of headship and submission begin with the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1? No. <laughs> No, the idea of headship and submission never began. It has existed eternally in the in the being of God. It has existed eternally in the very being of God. There's been difference in role between father and son. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, Eloise, you're saying what? Why has it become important that nothing should be elevated against anything else? It's because we've got a culture that for at least 50 years has had an underlying rebellion against all kinds of authority. Don't you know that? just I mean, I went to college in the 60s, and it was rampant then. uh, And I think ultimately the deep spiritual root of that is rebellion against the authority of God. And I think that's what's going on ultimately. Now, I know there's abuse of authority, and I'm not arguing for that, for cruelty and tyranny and all that, but legitimate authority is from God. He set it up in family with parents and children, in marriage with husband and wife, in church with elders, in businesses with the boss or the owner or the manager, uh, in civil government with, with civil authorities. There is authority that God has established for our good, and I think it's right. And so the idea of headship and submission never began. It has existed eternally in the being of God. That leads us to number four, the equality and differences between men and women are very good. Equality and differences between men and women are very good. Um, Submission to authority and having authority are wonderful virtues. They reflect the character of the Son and the Father in eternity. And in addition to that, Um, the created order is fair. I mean, does the son say to the father, "You've been in charge for four billion years; now it's my turn"? No. No, he says, "I delight to do your will." Oh my God, it's fair and it's best for us. What I'm saying, there is not one, one drop, one, one ounce, one milligram in what I'm saying that is anti-women. Because if this is God's teaching, it is what's best for both of us as men and women. This is God's wise plan, and it should result in truly honoring women as women honor husbands as well. It does not lead to abuse, but guards against it, because abuse is a horrible distortion of this teaching. It doesn't suppress women's gifts and wisdom, but honors them. And the created order is beautiful. God took delight in it, and it reflects his character. I think that God has ordained that in our hearts, he created us in a way that in our hearts there's something that should say, yes, this is right. It's, it's beautiful. And I think part of that beauty is it finds expression in sexuality between men and women in marriage. Genesis 2, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold tightly to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I think that God has created us so that as husband and wife, we are most attracted to the parts of us that are most different. And our deepest unity, physical and emotional and spiritual, comes at the point where we are most different. In our physical unity, as God intended it to function, there's no dehumanization of women, there's no emasculation of men, but there's equality and honor and deep joy, and yet there's difference as well as equality. Therefore, I think that sex within marriage is is precious to God. It shows equality and difference and unity, and it brings great joy. And I just can say, glory be to God. So it's beautiful. Now, key to issue number five, and this this will end, Our view of manhood and womanhood is a watershed issue that tests our obedience to the Bible. And I'm not going to go through a lot of detail here, but just to say that as I've been involved in this controversy for, oh, 25 years now, I guess, 20 at least, oh, maybe to some degree 25, and writing on this and talking on it and debating on it and... Um, I have seen that as churches and families and individuals make decisions on this and ministry, that it doesn't seem to me that the egalitarian position advances because they've got better arguments from the Bible or the Bible favors their view. It doesn't advance on the strength of exegetical argument, but rather it advances through incorrect interpretations of Scripture, some of which I've just mentioned, or through reading into Scripture things that aren't there. Um, and I detail that in this book, Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism, or through incorrect assumptions about the meaning of words like kephale and hupotasso and be subject to, or uh, incorrect assumptions about the history of the ancient world, or through methods of interpretation that reject the authority of Scripture and tend toward liberalism. And so in this book that came out a few months ago, Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism, I go through... 25 different arguments that I quote from egalitarians that I think just undermine the authority of Scripture, saying that Genesis is wrong, saying that Paul is wrong, saying that some verses that are in every manuscript are really not part of the Bible, saying that our authority is later developments, not the New Testament, uh, saying that um, we can ignore the disputed passages and decide on some other grounds, things like that. And, and I, I'm worried because I think that a position that someone takes on this issue of men and women is really a reflection of a deeper attitude towards Scripture in many, many cases. And so that's why I think it's an important issue. Um, and I think that this egalitarian position advances. I think it has two allies. Number one, the secular culture that always, it, it, it rejects authority. And you, re, you destroy authority in the family. That's the, build, that's the foundational building block. And, um, and Christian leaders who are complementarian, that's the view I'm holding, but lack courage to teach on it or take a stand. And Paul, Paul didn't do that. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole council of God. Paul had courage to teach unpopular things because they were in God's word and he knew they were good for his congregation. So that's what I want to, want to try to be faithful to do. And that's what I want us to do as a church. And I think we are doing as a church, incidentally. Um, so I'm thankful for that. Questions or comments? This is the end of this issue. Um, over here. I've, I've forgotten your name. Rosemary. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think this is all true, and I believe this. But what I would like to know, as being a single woman for many years, has there been much written about our relationship to God without a man in between? Mm. Or maybe even men without a woman? I really want to say something about that. Thank you for asking about the relationship of a woman to God without a man in between. I don't think that any woman, married or single, needs needs a man in between. Uh, I didn't say anything about that, but I think that you relate directly to God because we're a kingdom of priests. We're all high priests. We all have access into the holy of holies, men and women alike, equally. And you know what? I was I was just sitting at that prayer service for Julie Bennett last night, thinking my wife has this wonderful heart for God that puts me to shame many times in her her relationship with the Lord and her love for the Lord, and and so. Um, your relationship to God is just an open and free relationship to Him as your Father, to Jesus as your brother and your Savior, and um, and for married women too. Yeah, thanks, El. Thanks, Rosemary. Now I remember something you've told me about your life, and thanks for asking that. Yeah. One more, okay, John. Do you think that the distortions of scripture, like you're talking about right now, and some of the discussions you've been in for 25 years, do they start uh, with with theologians and manifest themselves in the secular world, or do they start in the secular world and then the theologians look for scripture and distort it? <laughs> Um does it start with the with the professors who go wrong or does it start with the secular culture who goes wrong uh a lot of times they seem to be yeah, it seems to be that both can happen yeah, John um both can happen um I don't fully understand where all that comes from um uh, but I do think it's a really it's i think it's a really really serious threat the authority of scripture in the church is uh, this egalitarian or evangelical feminist view and that's why i wrote this recent book yeah pammy uh, Ah. okay go ahead let's get this on the tape Pammy, because pammy's talking about what for a time after your first husband died. Yes, after my first husband died, I was comforted by the um, verse in Psalms that I am the husband to the husbandless and a father to the fatherless. It also Mm. reads in some translation a judge um, to the the ones that have not been Mm -hmm. judged correctly. But I got so much comfort from that and I used to I used to talk to Jesus as my husband yeah. and you know what's really interesting I remember saying to him You know here you are my perfect husband and I'm still not satisfied I'd like one with <laughs> flesh and bone you know and so we women are never satisfied. Yeah. Well well but but you did get one. And yeah. she's still not satisfied. <laughs> Okay. Well, I think we should end with Jack's comment. (laughs) Well, look, the last two weeks I had a hymn at the end, and Gene keeps telling me he likes the hymn that I have at the end of this chapter, and we didn't get to sing it. So. Let's see. Oh, I didn't do this. My expectation is, do I, do I know who's going to win in this battle, in this conflict? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think the egalitarian position is going to continue to harm many people, but I don't think for a minute that it'll win because Jesus promised, I will build my church. And he's doing that. And he, his goal is that he, in Ephesians 5 that he will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish throughout the history of the church. There have been all sorts of conflicts and controversies, but over the long course of history, in the end, the position that's faithful to Scripture has won out, and the other position has been marginalized and minimized in the church, and that's going to happen in this issue too. A a fair biblical position, I think, close to what I've been presenting here today, is going to triumph among the vast majority of God's people throughout the church and throughout the world, and uh, with great benefit and blessing for marriages and families. So I'm confident of that. Let's, uh, let's sing love divine, all love's excelling. Joy of heaven to earth, come down. Should we stand and sing? <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our Lord and Master and King, and we thank you for this teaching from your word. Lord, w- would you grant each of us in our hearts to see where there may be sin that causes us to stray one direction or another, from your ideal. Help us all as men and women to relate to one another in ways that honor and value and respect each other fully. And pray for marriages in here, Lord, that they would more and more fully reflect your purpose and your plan and be beautiful in your sight and in the sight of husbands and wives and in the sight of others. And for the single men and women here, Lord, I pray uh, that you would help them to delight in their Manhood or their womanhood as you have created it and help them to feel fulfillment in their relationship to you and in all that you call them to do. Lord, give us joy and thanksgiving in who you have made us to be. Amen.